This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right. So, well, sir, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is our Addiction 101 series for medical students. Um, We very much appreciate you taking the time. Um, For those of you who do not know, Dr. Gabor Mate, when it comes to being a doctor, he's he's an OG, as they say. Um, Some you have a very uh, illustrious uh, an, an old guy. What's that? An old guy. An old guy. <laughs> is that what you mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I am an old yeah, guy. <laughs> well, I think original gangsta is the uh, actual oh, 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 acronym, oh, 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 but. Um, I like that better. Thanks. So you're an OG, Dr. Mate. Um, after teaching literature for a bit, you went to the University of British Columbia for medical school, and you also did a family practice residency there. Um, and then. Uh, you went on to practice a little bit palliative care. Sounds like you delivered a few babies. Um, I'm an OBGYN um, by training, and you, especially relevant for this particular uh, uh, series, served patients suffering from addiction in in Vancouver, uh, where you've spent your career as a physician. Uh, You're the author of multiple best-selling books and Goodreads, I'll add, uh, Scattered, How Attention Deficit Disorder Originates and What You Can Do About It. And these are the American titles. When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress-Disease Connection. Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. And, of course, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. So, uh, welcome. And I could list a lot more interesting things about you as well as um, your... uh, intellectual preoccupations and and contributions you've made to human thought. Uh, But what I like to ask people is essentially, whether it's professional or personal, just in your life, what are you most proud of? What I'm most proud of is my um, drive and willingness to seek the truth, Uh, whether that means the truth about myself. And there's a lot of truths that I've had to find out about myself, not of which I've always liked, um, not all of which I've always liked, um, and truth about the nature of human experience, and uh, and especially as it shows up in issues of health and illness, and truth in the world in general about what is true about society, what is true about the world that we live in, and and how do all these personal truths uh, 
health truths and social truths all meld together into which they do so um really what i'm most proud of is my commitment to seek the truth um even when it wasn't comfortable for me or sometimes for others Ooh, uh, well in that case uh, i gotta follow up uh when has it been uncomfortable <laughs> when it has been uncomfortable yeah what is uh, an uncomfortable truth you've learned so you can tell us and we don't have to do it we can just use your experience well so one thing is uh, i was you know in my early 50s i was a very successful physician i was writing a national medical column here in canada for a canadian newspaper i had a busy family practice i was the director of a palliative care unit at the largest in-hospice sorry largest in-hospital hospice unit in canada and i was unhappy depressed workaholic uh, individual who was lit up by all the work and was pretty dark in my personal life uh, i was in a marriage that i'm still in but that was very stressful and uh, my children were afraid of me and i had addictive behaviors and to come to terms with all that is not comfortable uh, necessary and beautiful but not in the least comfortable um and that's in a personal sense not in a professional sense it's that i had to realize over practice and i'm certainly far from the only physician to have this experience is that what's important in the medical world is not just what they taught you in medical school but more particularly what they didn't teach you and there's a lot of learning that i had to do that i thought i was on my own now it turns out when it comes to say the body mind unity in health and illness or the relationship of trauma to adult illness and to addiction and so on it's not that these things haven't been studied it's not that i was an original thinker and coming up but the fact is i had to think originally because they don't teach you this stuff in medical schools for the most part they certainly didn't when i went to medical school so the other discomfort is having to come upon what i'm convinced are truths about human uh, experience and relationship to illness and health that go contrary to the dominant medical perspective and that's the case with addiction as well as we're going to talk about today so there's a certain discomfort in parting ways with the party line uh, in your profession but again for me right or wrong i was more interested in understanding truths that made sense to me than in following any prescribed uh, pathway yeah yeah and that is uh uh that's important uh my background is in philosophy mm. i i don't know sometimes how i got uh to the position i'm in as a uh, a physician i mean i do but um i think they're integral um integrally uh related okay, uh, can, but can i interrupt you yeah absolutely so this is my next book the myth of normal ah the myth, the myth of yeah normal, trauma illness and healing in a toxic culture now this is a printed up yeah, yeah. copy of the manuscript the book will not be published for a year yet so i'm not here to advertise it but i want to read you the epigraph to the book because you mentioned your physician and philosopher please i see you wrote it with your son yeah this is elias galenus galen of pergamum a roman physician who said the best physician is also a philosopher yes and yes i opened the book so there you are <laughs> <laughs> well perfect i'll be excited to read that and if uh need anyone to review the galleys i'm i'm here <laughs> i'd love to <laughs> um yeah my uh, uh 
the the collection of works by my um, my mentor, Dr. Ed Pellegrino, um, mm-hmm. is called Physician and Philosopher. He uh, okay. very much influenced my my thinking, um, and and so when I came to medicine, it, it was as a a seeker of truth and looking at the discipline of medicine, not so much as you know uh, applied biology but rather truly as an art that that makes use of science Um, and that is a very very important distinction that i think we can lose um, in modern medical education Um, and i i'm sure that sort of echoes um some some of the things that that you've thought and and discovered in your um you know seeking after the the truth as well um i'm very fond of of uh quoting the delphic oracle here on the show uh, to know thyself and remind people actually relevant for what was on the other side of the temple nothing in excess um little known fact so um Well, uh, we open each of these shows with a practice USMLE uh, question. Uh, This is, you know, uh, have you held a license in America? No. So you didn't have to ever take the USMLE, which is great. I'm purely a Canuck. Okay. All right. Well, thankfully, this will not count on whether or not you could ever get uh, a a license here. This will be just one question, but but here we go. Okay, so um, I'll I'll share my screen though, so you can read along. Sure. And every time, Zoom. All right. So in this one, we have a 16 year old female. Oh, and by the way, these are thanks to uh, our friends at Med Bullets. Um, go sign up for them. Their stuff is free. A 16-year-old female is brought to the primary care clinic by her mother. The mom is concerned about her daughter's grades, which have been slipping. Uh, She says uh, the patient usually earns a mix of A's and B's in her grades, but the past semester um, she's been getting C's and D's. Her mother's frustrated because she feels like the daughter is acting out more and, quote, hanging out with some no-good friends. Upon questioning the patient with her mother in the room, the patient does not say much and makes no eye contact. Mom is asked to leave the room. The patient's questioned again about any stress stressors. And after establishing rapport, uh, the patient breaks down and tearfully admits to trying various drugs in order to, quote, fit in with her friends. She says she knows the drugs are not good for me, but has been very stressed out about telling her friends she's not interested. Detailed questioning reveals the patient has been using alcohol, cocaine, and marijuana two to three times per week. The patient becomes agitated at the end of the interview and pleads for you not to tell her mother. She says that she knows they're illegal, but is afraid of what her parents would say. And so on the test, the question is, what is the best action in response to the adolescent's request? And we'll do A is apologize and say that you must inform legal authorities because the use of these drugs is illegal. B, apologize and say that you must inform her mother because these drugs pose a danger to her health. Mm -hmm. C, agree to the patient's request and do not inform the patient's mother. Or D, reassure the patient that there is confidentiality in this situation, but encourage her to tell her mother. So if you're you're a medical student, you had to take an exam like this, uh, what would be the best response? Well... I don't see the best response listed here. 
but, uh, <laughs> but uh, the scored my, response uh, yeah but but in terms of if i had to choose amongst these five certainly i'd go with the majority and reassure the patient that this is confidential but encourage you to tell them of these choices those are the five th that's the one i would choose However, yes this it's what makes these exams so much fun <laughs> however and you have a better way but it's not one of the choices if it was me in real life with a client uh, is it 15 year old is that, the, is that 16 the, i think 16 she was what i would say to her is i totally understand but are you willing to see me again as long as we agree that it's completely confidential as long as you want it that way in other words i would invite a return visit with the understanding i wouldn't encourage her to do anything at this point I would simply ask her, I would simply ask her, why are you willing to come back and see me again? Do you perceive a problem that you want help with? And would you like me to help you provide it with that help? I begin with that. That's the first opening. And then, and then yeah, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, so this, this question is, is mainly a confidentiality yeah. question on, or a legality question yeah. for the uh, Tarasov uh, decision, which outlines some reasons why it's ethically acceptable to break confidentiality and when it's not. But if you like, I'll give you what I think of this case. Absolutely. Okay, so first of all, we've learned a lot already here. Yes. One is this girl does not have a healthy relationship with her parents. Hmm. Um, if she did, um, none of this would be happening. Yeah. In other words, this may be a normal situation in our culture, but that's because our norm has become so denatured. So what happens in this culture is that children are far more connected to their peers than they should be. Now, children have this need for attachment, uh, to connect with somebody. And uh, that's just a biological drive. It's, it's, it's actually built into our brains, as we know. But nothing in the child's brain tells her who to connect with. It's the job of the culture to provide the child with the appropriate attachments. And in human evolution, those appropriate attachments for hundreds of thousands of years was the father, the mother, the extended family, the tribe, and the clan. So children have multiple adult people to attach to. Now in our culture, for all kinds of reasons I won't go into, uh, the extended family is being really eroded, community is gone, people are more and more isolated, the nuclear family itself is under assault, I mean, there's about a 40% divorce rate, so that children's natural attachments, which are the healthy adults, are less and less around. Now, the child's need to attach hasn't gone away. It's like a duckling that hatches from the egg. It imprints on the mother duck. If the mother duck is there, will it imprint on a toy or a dog if the mother duck is not there? Because the duck's brain is programmed to attach. So is the child's. In our culture, even that the adults are not around, from early age on, children become attached to their peers. And now you have immature creatures affecting and influencing each of those development inordinately. I'm not talking about should kids have friends or not. I'm talking about should the peers be the primary influence. When peers become the primary influence, it always represents a loss of the natural attachments to the nurturing adults in your life. So that's the first problem, which is immensely painful for the child, whether the child knows it or not. Hence, the need to use drugs and to hang out with peers. So what we're looking at here is a broad fam familiar issue. And if it was me dealing with this question, I would do two things, actually. I would invite this uh, young woman to come back and see me, private, you know, confidentially, and I would invite the mother to come back and see me. And I would talk to the mother 
not about anything that the child shared confidentially, but about the situation in the family that has this kid so alienated from the parents that she has to look for peer attachments and to fill the void of connection in her life. And in other words, I would I would work with this family to rebuild that healthy attachment between the parents and the child without blaming the parents because it's not their individual fault. This is a broad social phenomena and we're seeing it all over the place. And it's the subject of one of the books that you mentioned. Hold, hold on to your kids. Um, it's not that I wanna advertise my books, it's just that I write the books about the things I care about. So that's how I would see this. That's great. Um, yes, and I picked this question because I was hoping you would <laughs> allude to this because I thought it was very relevant. There are many cultural issues just broadly and within our own profession that that would make something like that difficult. But, um, you know, a, a pretty decent proportion of medical students listen to one of these Inside the Boards uh, podcasts. And, you know, I, our hope is that by providing perspectives that are not just simply about what you're supposed to know to take exams, um, that Eventually, when you guys become, you know, the leaders in healthcare, the the the, the convictions you learn throughout um, your time uh, listening to this podcast while you're going through med school and then residency, will help you retain some of the idealism that that seems to get trained out of us as we become more mature in our. Uh, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you two things that I found out in researching my next book. Yeah, one is that. There's been studies that have shown that medical students' highest empathy level is at the beginning of their training. And after that, it erodes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, there's got to be a reason for that. Number one. Number two, I, I suppose you know what telomeres are, the telomeres. Mm -hmm. Telomeres being these DNA structures at the end of our chromosomes, that the length of which denote health and the short you know the more stress and as we age the shorter they get the shorter they get the more inflammation there is the more chance of malignancy uh, the more biologically aged you are so on and so forth medical students telomeres have been studied and in a year they fray much more rapidly than those of age-related cohorts hmm. and this is a function of medical training the stress that medical students are under and and so when people are stressed they really have trouble looking at the larger picture and, and, and they lose empathy. Yep. And they really just want to toe the line so that we can get through and get the exam. This is not a moral fault of any physician or certainly of medical students, but it's an unfortunate fact of medical life. Yeah. It's, it's an unhealthy part of our, our, uh, our, our own like culture and what we perpetuate, which, and, and we should, medicine's a moral community. And we, I think, are, are failing um, in, in some important aspects uh, that have been written in into our codes of ethics since Hippocrates about, you know, sharing the knowledge to, to anyone who wants to learn this art um, and uh, in, in that most definitely. So, well, why did you end up gravitating towards serving patients with addiction? Did that happen during medical training or subsequently? Well, um, right after I finished my internship, which is in Montreal, I came back to Vancouver where I live. Now, what your listeners need to know is that the downtown east side of Vancouver, the DTES, as it's called, 
is North America's most concentrated area of drug use. Vancouver is a port city with a fairly mild climate, so people gravitate here. Easy e ingress of drugs from all over the world. Very poor area, the downtown east side. This is a huge drug using community. We have more people using in a few square block radius, ingesting, inhaling, injecting drugs than anywhere else in North America. So it's a it's a benighted poor wow. area. Thirty percent of the clients down there that I had when I was working down there are First Nations, Indigenous Canadians, who make up five percent of the population, make up thirty percent of the downtown east side population, and thirty percent of our jail population. 5% of the general population. Why? Because they're the most traumatized segment of Canadian society for reasons I could go into. But as many of you may have heard the news, for example, within the last few months, they found thousands of dead bodies of Native children outside residential schools where our Indigenous population was forced to send their kids for over 100 years. So it's a horrendous history and it's a horrendous situation in the present as well. Yeah. So that's the downtown east side. And when I finished my internship in Montreal, the first job I got was at a clinic in the downtown east side. Yeah. And I worked there for six months. I just loved the people down there. And I always knew I was going to end up working back there. But I wasn't ready to do it then. I, I went the usual route. I established my family practice, delivered a thousand babies, ended up working in palliative care, looked after people at every moment from birth till death. Got a broad experience in general practice, looked after families multi-generationally. And after 20 years, when all of a sudden I get this phone call, would you like to come and work in a downtown inside at this rat-infested cockroach United <laughs> Hotel? I said, sure, when do I start? S sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. And so then I did that for 12 more years. And um, in the meanwhile, I started writing books and uh, it is in the larger social questions underlying particular medical problem, especially addiction, yeah. which to me is such a sign of social and personal trauma. Uh, and it's so then that's been so little recognized in the medical profession and in the medical understanding of addiction that um, both on the personal level, I just wanted to make a change and uh, make a difference. And on a general level, I wanted to get this information out to as many people as possible. So that's how I ended up working with this addicted population. And I have to say also, I recognized myself in them. There was nothing about these heroin addicted HIV ridden clients that I didn't see in myself. I've never been a substance user, but boy, I've had addictive behaviors. And um, it was very comfortable being amongst uh, people with whose energy I could really resonate. Yeah, I agree, actually. Um, so like I said, I'm an obstetrician. Um, I graduated residency in 2014. Um, and last year, 2020, I started working in an opioid treatment program where we provide methadone and, and buprenorphine. Um, my particular community is, is absolutely devastated by um, the the opioid epidemic. We you know had a I think 140 people in our our, our city die last year, which uh, was a big deal. And um, yeah. mm. I I've always got along with these patients, but now that I'm actually specifically working with them in the context of of their addiction, it's it a few things. I, and I'm going to keep saying this throughout this series. Is number one, it's it's renewed my love for being a doctor. Um, I've, I've, it's been incredibly humbling for me. It's been 
enraging at times to hear the stories of how poorly these suffering human beings are, are, are treated. And it's been amazing to me, like, uh, I mean, how easy it is, if you will, to be a good doctor yeah. in the sense that, I mean, frankly, excuse my language, don't be a dick. That is a, a good way to summarize it. And, yeah. and you will win these people over and, you know, give them hope. It's like, it's not that hard. Um, no, and, and they're lovable, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they're, because they're so authentic. I mean, it's funny, like they cheat and they lie and they manipulate. You know, I mean, I've had my cell phone stolen off my desk, you know, yeah. one of my favorite patients. But, but for all their manipulation and cheating and lying, which they have to do to survive in the world that we've created for them. Right. They're authentically themselves. They don't pretend to be anybody else. Yeah. Well, when this guy, as I recount the story in the book in, in Hungry Ghost, you know, the, when I caught this guy stealing my cell phone, he said, well, what am I supposed to do, Doc? I'm an addict. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, there's no pretense, you know. And and so and the, the, you went with him to the pawn shop, right? Yeah, we ended up going to the pawn shop together, getting the cell phone back <laughs> within ten minutes of him leaving the office. Yeah, my cell phone was already in the pawn shop. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I and, and it makes you thankful too, like grateful that that you know you don't suffer from from this. I, I mean, certainly, like me, I, I can't imagine having to deal with like an, an opiate addiction. Um, just it. You know, it, it takes takes the light out of people's eyes, and um, and on that note, why why the term "hungry ghost"? So it's a concept I was familiar with, but I hadn't thought of it as a book title. But um, in the Buddhist realm, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, but I'm I've dabbled in. I'm more than dabbled. I've read about it, and I've you know I've, I've meditated. And anyway, in the Buddhist realm, in, in particularly Tibetan Tibetan Buddhist realm, I think there are six realms. Of, of existence there's the hell realm of unbearable emotions rage terror that's the hell realm there's the ordinary human realm which is our normal cells there's the animal realm which is our lusts and our id and our our, our biological drives there's the god realm of spiritual realization there are the realms but one of the realms is the hungry ghost realm and in the hungry ghost realm the creatures are depicted as beings with large empty bellies small scrawny necks tiny mouths so they can never get enough substance the, the, the big bellies can never get filled so they're forever haunting their lives wanting to fill from the outside this insatiable hollowness that they carry inside that's the realm of addiction always trying to get something from the outside to to, to, to deal with that unbearable emptiness on the inside and I, my contention is metaphorically speaking and by the way it's not like you're in one realm or the other all the time. We can all cycle through all the six realms. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe even in the same day. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I've been in the hell realm and then Hungry Ghost realm and the human realm, the animal realm, all on the same day. Um, but my contention is that people are driven into the Hungry Ghost realm to escape the hell realm of unbearable emotions. Yeah. In other words, it's trauma driven. That's what the understanding is. And contrary to the, mainstream medical view i don't think we're dealing with a brain disease and i don't think we're dealing with the at least of all are we dealing with the genetic brain disease and we can talk about all that but i i actually think it originates yeah. in, in in unbearable emotions that people try and soothe through addictive behaviors including substances but not exclusively substances 
Now, are you willing to say that categorically or make the distinction just so I understand you that that it's not like it? I, I will agree. I sort of I, I sort of believe, think that the medical view of, of just disease in general and in particular for addiction as, as a disease um, is reductionistic um, or reductionist and um, I mean, we we know a lot about the the science, the neurobiology. <laughs> it's funny. Yesterday, I interviewed uh, Nora Volkov uh, from NIDA. I know, and Dr. Dr. Volkov, to my mind, knows so much and understands so little. <laughs> in, in, in my humble opinion, yeah. I mean, I've learned a lot from her. She's done amazing work. Yes, brilliant work. You know, at the same time. I don't think her model of addiction really understands human beings. Yeah, interesting. Oh, I, we definitely have to get you two um, in the ring. Um, that would be a, a very exciting uh, conversation. I'd love to engage with her sometime. Yeah, we. I mean, I, I, again, I'm so grateful for her work, and I excite her all the time. Yes, yeah, so, um, but at the same time, I think it's limited. Yes, I, and that's uh, and. Yes, absolutely. Um, you you write in uh, part two of uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, chapter nine. And by the way, part two is titled Physician Heal Thyself. Uh, but in, yeah. in chapter nine, you say, quote, the fundamental addiction is to the fleeting experience of not being addicted. The addict yes. craves the absence of the craving state. And for a brief moment, he's liberated from emptiness, from boredom, from lack of meaning, from yearning, from being driven, or from pain. He is free. His enslavement to the external, the substance, the object, or the activity, consists of the impossibility in his mind of finding within himself the freedom from longing or irritability. So, how does one, as a physician or a physician in training, help move a patient toward thinking such internal freedom is then possible to, to instill hope that, that addresses this, uh, this craving, uh, this hopeless craving state. Well, it's difficult if the physician hasn't found that within themselves. Mm. Part of the limitations of, of the profession is that we're very little asked to examine ourselves, you know, and there's hardly any time for it. In fact, you know, we're discouraged from it. And, and very often, the most sensitive ones are selected out. You know, that's just an aspect of medical training. Mm. So if I haven't within myself glimpsed some possibility of being free from these drives, it's hard to show that it's hard to inspire others to move in that same direction. So that's why I think that in, in all the health, healing professions, and particularly in medicine, I think the self work is just so important. Having said that, if you were a patient, what would you rather hear? That you got this genetic disease, your genes have determined that you got this biological condition of your brain, or that you're morally weak and a failure and just lack willpower and you've just made a bunch of stupid choices in your life, which is the mainstream point of view, by the way, not the mainstream medical point of view, but it's the mainstream social point of view. The mainstream medical point of view is that you got this genetic disease or largely genetic disease, biologically determined. Would you rather have those two alternatives? Would you rather hear, you know what? Nothing wrong with you fundamentally. Just your experiences that affected the neurobiology of your brain in such ways as to make you very susceptible for addictive behaviors, including substances. Yeah. And that neurobiology can be understood in terms of your life experience, knowing what we know about brain development these days. 
and that in fact that addiction played a role in your life a necessary role in your life and you know here's where i ask people now what's wrong with the addiction what's right about it what did it do for you in the short term they'll say peace of mind yep. stress relief numbing now when do people need numbing it's when they're in pain uh, made me feel more connected to people um gave me a sense of uh, control well these are all wonderful things what kind of a disease gives you all these wonderful things they're wonderful in the short term but they don't last because they're yeah. trying to get from the outside things that really need to emerge from within but you say to people what would they rather hear you had a bunch of experiences that gave you so much pain that you have to keep soothing it and they also affected your brain in certain ways but we can help to heal that pain and we can help your brain develop in new ways now which of those three alternatives would you rather hear by the way the third one happens to be the only scientific one the other two are totally non-scientific yeah and and uh, uh comprehensive um takes into account the the full like panoply of uh human experience and yeah and i and this is why i very much appreciate your your work in 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 the book um and a, a number of lectures you've you've given which are all um freely available on on youtube for instance for anyone interested is is that you do take into account um and engage you know with and, and you can see the struggle as a, as a writer and thinker in this the, that you know there is this biological component and and this is what i've gone to telling patients like we can treat the biological component of your opiate addiction with these medicines but that isn't going to solve the community communal problems the relationality um uh challenges that you have you know <laughs> you're living with a bunch of people who are are using and they're offering you something that is what you desire like automatically as a reflex it, how, how can you say no you and you look at well and, and also and also you've got a lot of pain that you're naturally trying to soothe right pain as a result of life experiences that you didn't choose that were imposed upon you and you had no power no 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 power of choice in the matter and 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 by the way right i never say to people that i'm treating your addiction with suboxone or methadone i'm not treating the addiction what i'm doing is beneficially so but i'm substituting one addiction for another that's a very controversial idea <laughs> well isn't it true i don't know have you actually what you've done is replaced one opiate with another you you replaced one opiate which is injectable and maybe laced with fentanyl and who knows what bacteria you're carrying yeah and you have to hunt illegally for it with a legally prescribed precisely dosed much more beneficial opiate yeah all that's wonderful i'm totally in favor of it but you haven't treated the addiction you've replaced it and that's fine that's a necessary step forward yeah. I just want to be clear in what language we use. That's all. Yes. Yeah, and and I I definitely see what you're 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 saying here. Um I I mean not not to get too critical of the uh, quote medical establishment, but um I I think that in 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 science and in medicine as a, a branch of science um distinctions are often not made as rigorously as they could be words are not used as judiciously and i think that in many honestly i feel like this is a problem with the way um all things 
like COVID related have been communicated to the public. We tend to talk as if we are know-it-alls, you know, as it were. And that's a huge turnoff to people. Um, but we also don't make, you know, uh, important distinctions just in general that, that can be helpful to people who don't have a medical training, a lens through which to think about many things. If I, what I would say to people is, I'm going to give you a substance that's easy to use, will not do you harm, will be very hard to get off, but it's a whole lot better than you scrunching the streets for your next hit of, uh, of, of heroin or fentanyl. Yeah, absolutely. And that'll give us respite to go to work on all the issues that made you addicted in the first place. And it might make it easier for you to hold down a job, get housing, stay in relationships. It's all wonderful. But the fundamental treatment has to get at the causes of your addiction, not just at the manifestations of it. Another way to say that is it that, that as physicians, we really need to treat the whole person. Because yeah. I, I think that, that that is empirically obvious, almost a truism. But uh, yeah, I, 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 there does seem to be somewhat of an antagonism in, in medicine. Um, on, on one end, there are people who will take the idea of you replacing one addiction for another and say, therefore methadone, buprenorphine, these things should not be given to people. I'll be honest, my psychiatrist wife has a, a, a leaning this way. Not quite, but, but she, there's a tension there. Really? Would you rather have people use heroin in the streets? <laughs> well, I mean, this, these are debates we go back and forth. She, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but then on the other side, you have people who will say that the entire solution seems to be with what we can provide via prescription or dispensing from uh, a pharmacy. But there is a place for, it seems to me, by evidence of people who've gotten better that I have seen get better truly over the last year and a half even. And that is that there's a, there's a fundamental change in their, their being, their, their person, like an ontological uh, metamorphosis that, that often involves a changing relationships, you know, the medicine enabling them to change or see that a relationship that they're in is chronically traumatic or to re-engage a, a spiritual practice that, that they still believe, but they're living outside of. And, and psychologically, I, I'm pretty convinced if you are born into a community of belief, as long as that belief is healthy, it's near impossible to be a healthy human being and ignore the your your origins essentially well absolutely and and look um from a practical point of view scrounging for heroin is dangerous mm -hmm. it's very stressful it's all consuming that's all you can think about um it deprives time and energy from personal relationships from any yeah useful work very often so if somebody takes Suboxone twice a day, they don't have to spend their time trying to meet some desperate need without which they go through terrible withdrawal. So for me, it's not a debate in any sense at all. Sure. Uh, except I would say it doesn't end there. It begins there. It doesn't end there. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. 
Well, can you speak to that? What What's an example in your mind of, of a patient that you're you're just proud of, like a story that just has a beautiful ending? Well, um, one, I can mention a couple, but one just very recent one. So there's a film made about my work called The Wisdom of Trauma. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I know it's been seen by about 5 million people internationally. Uh, it was aired um, in June and then again last week. Um, and there's a way to get to it. But the point is, along with this, and, and um, m much of it is about addiction, actually. It's called The Wisdom yeah. of Trauma. You can Google it. But along with showing the film, we had a, we did a bunch of interviews, uh, including we did a wonderful interview with a group of physicians about the stress of being a physician. <laughs> Everybody, should, Every medical person should see that one. Yeah. Um, but one of the interviews I did was on addiction and trauma, and I spoke with... Um, number of people, including uh, physicians, but also a former patient of mine from the downtown east side. His name is Guy Felicelli. And when I met Guy, he was like injecting several times a day. He was having abscesses and all manner of diseases. He was clearly ADHD. Uh, I'm, I happen to be particularly good at picking that up because I've been diagnosed with it myself. So I just, just like takes one to no one. He was using cocaine. I put him on Ritalin as he, when he was a drug user, and that helped him think and calm down. Yeah. Well, I left the downtown side before he did, but he, he was in his interview. He said that I was the first one who had ever asked him about his childhood. And when I asked him about his childhood, he just started crying. Yeah. I didn't recall this, but he did. And subsequently, he got treatment for his trauma, treatment for his ADHD. He's now married with three kids. He's working in uh, helping re rehabilitate people. He's a very effective, happy guy. When I met him, he was like a downtrodden street dweller. You know, now I did play a role. I, I don't take credit for his transformation. Yeah. But it did open some things up for him. And this is what strikes me is how often I spoke with people who had serious substance addictions. And by the way, I think our discussion of addiction is incomplete if we only talk about substances. That's maybe a whole other issue. And this is some of my differences. With, it is. <laughs> yeah, because this is one of my differences with Dr. Volkov would show up. But with all these people who are abjectly dependent on substances and they get hepatitis C and HIV and abscesses of the spine and the brain and the joints and the tissues, nobody had ever asked about their childhood. Virtually nobody until they came to my office, which is extraordinary. Because I didn't meet, a, in all those years, yeah. I met not a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. And I doubt that, Patrick, that you will, in your practice, meet too many women who are not sexually abused as children. Yes. And, and the men had been abused, some sexually, physically, emotionally neglected, and so on. I'm talking about the extreme cases of drug use such as i was dealing with i'm not saying every addicted person went to that level of distress but certainly the population i dealt with did and nobody had ever asked them about it which is extraordinary and it's a real a negative tribute to medical training that we don't learn to ask the most basic questions yeah absolutely well um why don't we leave us with this what what is an effective if you could introduce into one's way of meeting patients or screening for addiction or dealing with actually addicted patients? What, what question would be good to ask a patient to help them start 
changing or get them prepared to change and get on the road to, you know, living a full human life? Thanks. Uh, before I say what question I would start with, I think it's very important to know who's asking the question. And when I say who's asking the question, are you doing it as an interrogator? Are you doing it as a cold medical examiner or gatherer information? Or are you there as a human being? And that makes all the difference to the quality of answers you're going to get. Absolutely. And the more we hide behind our white coats and stethoscopes, and the more we are identified with our role as the professional, the less human contact you can expect with these people who've been hurt so much in their lives. Who are they hurt by? They're caregivers very often. Now, here you are as a caregiver. Why should they even trust you? In other words, this business of the resistant or the recalcitrant or the difficult patient, no. It's on us to create that relationship. So that's the first point. Now, what kind of question would I ask? I begin with something I raised before. Not what's wrong with your addiction, but what's right about it. What is it doing for you? Oh, it makes you feel at peace. Oh, it relieves stress. Oh, it gives you a sense of control. Oh, it numbs your pain. Oh, it distracts you from your difficulties. Well, boy, I can understand why you're using I I want those qualities too. How did you lose them? What happened in your life that you have so much pain that you have to numb yourself? What happened that you've had so much stress in your life that you haven't learned to regulate your stresses? Why is it, I wouldn't put it in these abstract scientific terms, but why didn't your HPA axis develop in such a way as to be able to manage the stresses of life? Well, guess what? Medical people, the HPA axis and the brain and all the circuits in the brain that are implicated in addiction from the opiate, from the endorphin circuitry to the dopamine circuitry of incentive motivation, the circuits of stress regulation, they all develop in interaction with the environment and under conditions of trauma, they don't develop properly. So I'm looking at the brains of these people, you're looking at not causes, you're looking at effects of life. And so I would say, well, what happened to you? Well, tell me about your life history. So I begin with those two questions. What is it doing for you? How did you lose those qualities that the addiction temporarily provides for you? And um, can we talk about how you can walk yourself back so that you don't need to be relying on this behavior, whether it's sex or gambling or the practice of medicine or, or, or drugs in order to give you a, a proper sense of yourself? So that, that's how I began. And, and, um, it's a and it's something medical students can actually do because they tend to have more more time with patients as well. They can. And uh, I think it would be illuminating for them. And I hope by now all medical students are familiar with the adverse childhood experiences studies, the ACE studies. Uh, Dr. Vince Felitti, who the San Diego internist who was the original researcher of the ACE studies, he said something that I just love. He said about addiction, he said... Uh, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. <laughs> yeah. So because that pornography works temporarily to give you a charge, get your dopamine circuit going, because the work gives you a temporary thrill of adrenaline rush that's really energizing, because the heroin gives you that endorphin hit where you feel love and warmth and connection, but it doesn't last. So it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. And that's the key to that's the key to addiction. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gabor Mate, you 
authored In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which should be required reading um, for medical students. So please check that book out, and you are welcome back anytime. It's been honestly a, a true pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, again, thank you so much. I, I've, I've really appreciated your work, and um, I, I hear you have a media blackout in 2022. I, I, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Stephanie's pretty good uh, at uh, screening, uh, keeping your schedule on. Stephanie's fierce, but you know what? I'm happy to come back and talk with you anytime you want. Really? Uh, I, I would love that if... Oh, yeah, oh, there's, there's so much more we could talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right, keep up the work. I'm excited about the next book, too. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I didn't know whether I would finish it or it would finish me, but <laughs> it was big, you know, it was, it's, a, it's a huge subject. But anyway, it's done. I'm very happy with it. It'll be out next September. You're pretty prolix as far as uh, writing goes. And well, no, I haven't written a book for um, 13 years now. It's taken me that long. Really? Yeah. I used to write so much and then basically medicine, medicine ruined my creativity not really but it, it definitely made it a challenge well you know what this is what i found so you you you, were, you studied philosophy first is that right yep well that's great what you will find what i found is that it all comes around in the end yeah so my my interest in literature and english and history and then my lifelong dream of being a doctor and and and, and wanting to write it all came together in the end and i'm sure that'll be happening for you as well you know I hope so. So nothing is actually lost. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, I've got philosophy of personality is probably the the project I'll start when I uh, okay. uh, retire eventually. So okay. <laughs> wonderful. But I I will email you and uh, stay in touch and thank you again and um, talk to you another time. Yeah, you take care. Bye bye. <laughs>